You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Lots to get to today as the NFL news continues to be top of mind. We are going to balance our reaction to the NFL's announcement to appeal the Deshaun Watson suspension with as much remembering of the great Vin Scully as we can today. And we've got some great folks that are come on going to come on to do it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz again today on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Yeah, last night, shortly after we finished the show, Courtney, Vin Scully, the iconic broadcaster for the Dodgers, passed away at the age of 94. And last night and all day today, there have been some truly incredible memories shared. And I don't know where you even begin to start with someone that had a career as long as his and also seemed to have such an effect on as many people as he did. It's so great to see it, and it's so great to hear from so many broadcasters out there who didn't necessarily try to model what Vin Scully did because nobody really could. Like I heard Boog Shiambi on my way back down into the city earlier today, who for, for those who don't know, co- calls uh, Chicago Cubs games on radio and on TV as well. And just hearing how he shaped what Boog wa- wanted to do. And obviously mm-hmm. let that final call, uh, he went back and listened to Sandy the Co- the Sandy Koufax call last night, and I feel like that's what I'm going to do when I get off air here because there was so much that Vin Scully was able to do to paint a picture in ways that it's just like it's it's timeless and it's something that no one else will ever be able to replicate. And I thought about it when I saw the news of his passing last night that I was actually at his final game that he was calling in 2016 when the Dodgers were playing the San Francisco Giants up in San Francisco and it was a game that the Giants needed to get into the wild card round that year and I did a piece for the San Jose Mercury News where I worked at the time and went and had a chance to interview former broadcasters former players people who were touched by Vin Scully throughout all walks of life and it was a really it was a really cool way to see just that you know the personality and that none of this was a facade like he was truly such an icon and I think talking with John Miller who calls games national called games nationally and now does it uh, full-time obviously for the San Francisco Giants and hearing how much of an impact he had in the game of baseball but the way that he transcended sports broadcasting as a whole is truly something I don't think will ever be replicated again and it, it, we, we did lose a really good one and it's sad uh, but I do love seeing all of the memories that people are laying forth today. And it's nice when you know that someone lived such a full life and that he did retire and give himself some time to smell the roses, as he said, and to look around and and take stock of everything he'd done. We're going to get to more Vin Scully memories. Tim Kirkshin and the great Steve Garvey going to join us to talk about it. Let's quickly also touch on, because uh, we're going to get Dan Graziano to give us some more detail on this, but the NFL has decided to appeal the Deshaun Watson suspension of six games. Courtney, the only real question about this was whether or not they would like to undermine the brand new process of an independent judge that was jointly hired by the PA and the league itself. I wasn't sure how much that would influence this because on the other side of that pressure to not undermine that, there's the pressure of public outcry to a suspension that feels wholly inadequate based on not only the year plus of stories that we've heard about Deshaun Watson's action, the number of accusations and alleged victims, but also the fact that the judge ruled that the NFL proved their case that he had committed multiple sexual assaults that he was a predator with a 
premeditated aim to sexually assault women knowing that that behavior was unwanted. When she ruled all of that and then essentially said, because of precedent in your CBA, I can only go as far as to give six games. It was almost like she said to Roger Goodell in the NFL, you proved your case and then you prevented me from acting on the very thing that you asked me to do. Fix your system. And so that's why I believe that Roger Goodell and the NFL said, we would rather undermine this system and get it fixed than we would stand by and watch as the public will react to this. And it will point out for the millionth time that the league does not care about women. It almost feels like that the public pressure the NFL is certainly facing right now that they had their minds made up before the six-game suspension was handed down. Like, I can't imagine that people in the league office, Roger Goodell, having seen the same articles that you and I have seen for the last year plus in hearing all of the allegations and being privy to information that is not public, that the NFL has had to consider within their entire case against Deshaun Watson in hearing, that – They weren't already going to do this anyways, because remember, back about a month ago, we were hearing that they were seeking an indefinite suspension, which would, of course, be a minimum of one year. Now we're hearing from ESPN's Jeff Darlington that the NFL's appeal will also include some sort of monetary fine. So to me, of course, the public perception of the NFL and how it treats women and how it views women certainly weighs heavy into this. But I, I, I tend to believe that they already knew that that was coming. And that if they didn't go ahead and appeal this, especially after the statement the PA put out on Sunday night, urging the NFL to not do it because they knew it was going to be a favorable ruling in favor of Deshaun Watson, that that's what carries the most weight here. And I'm not surprised at all that they've arrived at this decision, you know, well ahead of the deadline of tomorrow morning. It's Spain and Fit, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, reacting to the news that the NFL will appeal the suspension of Deshaun Watson. The timeline is going to be interesting because in the past we've seen appeals on suspensions result in players' availability right away because the NFLPA argues that they can't be prevented from participating if the ultimate punishment is still up in the air and being appealed. Uh, So the question of when Deshaun Watson will be available is now one that we'll need to figure out. And the decisions based on uh, uh, the NFLPA. I mean, I think it's confusing, Courtney, that the NFLPA collectively bargained a system by which Roger Goodell would hear the appeal. And yet Mm -hmm. reports had them saying in advance of this, no matter what the ruling was, that if the NFL appealed, then they would sue the NFL in federal court. You've collectively bargained a system that results in the NFL's ability to appeal, and then when they use that ability, you sue. And it, it's it's a cat chasing its tail in a lot of ways, um, but it's not that surprising because the NFL wanted to remove itself and the idea of it being judge, jury, and executioner. But as I spoke about throughout the reaction to this ruling, they ended up essentially being the prosecution in the case and also limiting the judge's ruling based on the precedent that they had already set. And that came up so many times in her ruling. And that was partly, I think, why they decided to appeal, because they basically won. She agreed with almost everything that they argued. But then 
she used multiple terms of precedent, specifically Ray Rice, where he suspended was suspended for two games. And after public outcry, Roger Goodell changed the policy to establish a six-game suspension as standard for first-time violent offenders, but gave fair notice to players and the public of the probable consequences of violent conduct by changing the policy. In this case, she says you haven't changed the policy in advance of him committing what she deemed to be a nonviolent sexual act, which... Again, we, none of us can reconcile the nonviolent part here, but that's what she's saying. And she said, you'd essentially have to tell everyone you're likely to receive more games for doing these things before they did them so then they could choose whether or not to do them. I mean, that's the absurdity of it all, Courtney, is that Deshaun Watson wouldn't have predated on 30-plus women if he had known it might be eight games instead of three. Yeah, I mean, that's just incredible nonsense. And I understand that the precedent, like to your point, I wonder now if the NFL is, is looking into this to appeal and going to appeal because this is the only way that they can, at least in their mind, instead of ratifying a whole new section of the CBA, which I don't understand why that would be that difficult because it is possible. You don't have to wait till 2030 to do it when it expires. It's not contract language mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of the negotiations part. It's something within the personal conduct policy, which which is amenable. You can You can change that at times. But this is the only way, apparently, the league feels it's able to do that. Because if they do, if you know, we know the the decision is ultimately up to Roger Goodell from here on out. So Sue Robinson gave her recommendation, which was six games. Now it's in the hands of Roger Goodell to carry out potentially that indefinite suspension, and what could go beyond that with this monetary fine that could, you know, be Mm -hmm. quite substantial for someone of Deshaun Watson's stature. But we do know his contract, the way that it was structured was that they were expecting something like this to happen, even dating back to the time that he was traded from Houston to Cleveland. It doesn't feel like a fine from the league would have to be related at all to his salary, so I would imagine they could find him whatever number they want, regardless of his salary. It'll be interesting to see if they try to make a statement there to get back at the Browns for making that contract, one in which he could lose a very small amount of money for missed games. Um, also, Roger Goodell is able to consider the appeal himself or appoint a designee to do, to do so. So he might decide to do that so that he removes, again, the idea of him being the ultimate decider here. All right, we're going to get some more information about this from someone who knows a lot of detail on this process. We'll ask Dan Graziano when he joins us on Spain and Fitz next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. The breaking news out of the NFL today, the appeal of the Deshaun Watson suspension. Not that surprising, considering the judge ruled that she agreed with the NFL's case, but then seemed to feel hamstrung by precedent and ended up offering up a much shorter sentence than the NFL had asked for. Now it comes back around to appeal, and Dan Graziano, ESPN NFL insider, joins us to give us the details on it. So, Let me start quickly with the question I just asked, which is if the NFLPA collectively bargained a system that results in in Roger Goodell being able to appeal and have the final say on this, why would they say that they are ready to sue the league and take them to federal court for appealing? Well, I mean, I I think the the way to look at it is that the new part of the CBA on this is is the independent arbitrator, right? It used to be Goodell was uh, sort of judge, jury, and executioner on all this stuff, and, and the players didn't like that, so they, they fought for a, a change in the system uh, with the independent arbitrator. But my understanding is that 
in conceding that, the, the league and the owners insisted on keeping Goodell as kind of the fi- having the final say. Um, so I guess that's just the best they could do, the, right. the NFLPA. That makes and, sense. And so, um, so then the, what's left, and we've seen this from them over the years, right? What's left is, you know, can, can we take them to court? And they haven't done very well there. You know, cases like the Tom Brady to placate and Ezekiel Elliott suspension years ago. Um, but I, I guess they feel like they can sort of make it ugly, and and they're hopeful. I think you know if, if they're talking about suing, uh, then that's probably because they're hopeful that that the league will hear that and, and not want it to go to court, and maybe they'll they'll act differently. But the NFL seems pretty confident historically that they can win those cases. So we heard back about a month ago that the NFL was seeking this indefinite sort of suspension that would be much yeah. longer than six games. So. You know, it feels like Cleveland was probably expecting that when they acquired Watson, given some of the fail safes they put in place. Um, what should we know now about like their side of things and what Cleveland has been saying publicly and privately with this appeal kind of hanging in the balance and now knowing that it's going to go through? Yeah, I, I think now, you know, if you're Cleveland, it's just about how do we manage our way through the season? And they, they can't really answer that question until – they have more information, right? Like, is, is how long is he going to be suspended? Is the is the appeal going to result in additional games? Is it going to result in the entire year? Um, all those things are unknowns, and so Cleveland's, you know, back to where they have been, which is, you know, the, just sort of waiting to, for this to to reach a resolution. Which I mean, I, I think we are pretty close, right? I mean, the uh, the union's response brief is due Friday, and then. They'll set a hearing, and it'll probably be, I would think, sometime next week, and then maybe we'll have an answer by the end of next week. But uh, if he's out for the year, I would think that that raises the strong possibility of Cleveland engaging in a, in a Jimmy Garoppolo pursuit, I, I would think. I mean, they have Jacoby Brissett, but I don't believe they got Jacoby Brissett with the intention of playing him for a full season. I, I think the idea was that Watson would be suspended for some time and, and this guy could get us through whatever that time is. But I don't think they planned on it being a whole year. So I, I imagine they'll start looking at other options if that's what it ends up being. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Dan Graziano, Courtney Cronin with me here, Sarah Spain on ESPN Radio. You can follow him at Dan Graziano ESPN. Whose decision is it as to whether or not he will be able to participate in the meantime? And when do you think we'll find that out? You mean... Um, training camp preseason games that kind of thing yeah because i think i had read something that if there was an appeal he would be available for week one and going forward until it was decided well i mean there's a lot of things that could happen so like for example if he's suspended like let's say the six game suspension held up he could participate in training camp and preseason games when they'd have to leave after the last preseason game but if he's suspended indefinitely with the right to appeal or to reapply after a year my understanding on that is he would have to go now. Like, he would not be allowed to participate in training camp. Um, you know, it, it's not the same thing, but, you know, Calvin Ridley suspended indefinitely with the right to apply for reinstatement after a year. He's not at Falcons training camp. He's not allowed to be at camp. So that's a big part of this as well that could end up uh, factoring in. But I think if, if, there is, if, there's a, if there's a lawsuit, right, then along with that lawsuit, they could the union could could file an injunction uh, that would get him on the field while the suit is is working its you know while the, the, the suit is working its way through. That wouldn't necessarily succeed. Uh, in some cases, it has. In some cases, it hasn't. But that would be 
the mechanism whereby he'd be on the field week one is if they were, you know, they were suing and they got an injunction that allowed him to play while the suit was pending. So if he is, like, if more accusations surface or if he is found liable yeah. in that remaining lawsuit, like, what happens? Well, I think that's that's at the heart of why the league wants um, the indefinite suspension, Courtney. I, I think because uh, they want to guard against that possibility, more information coming out, and now whatever suspension they imposed looks um, – looks paltry and as long as these cases are still pending as long as one case is still pending there's a possibility for that to happen so i think that's why they uh they don't know the answer to your question uh but i think they want to leave open the possibility of you know penalizing him further or keeping him out longer if more information comes to light that makes uh the behavior um of which he is uh, of which he's alleged or uh, just by the nfl's uh, arbitration a uh, discipline officer that has been already sort of found guilty. Um, uh, I, I think they would they would like to keep it open the possibility of being able to to keep him out longer. So that's my guess is that's what would happen, or it would it would hurt his chances of succeeding in a, an application for reinstatement a year from now. But um, yeah, that that's yeah that's why they're looking for indefinite. Hey Dan, thirty seconds or less, and we're talking to Dan Graziano. Um, it feels like the NFL won the case, but then they were told their own precedent and yeah. CBA was the reason for limited punishment. Will they go in and fix that like we saw with Ray Rice? Possible. Yeah. I mean, look, they, they after post Ray Rice, they established a personal conduct policy that was unilateral, right? They, the union was not involved in crafting that. So the, the league could certainly do that again uh, and, and establish a, a new policy that would account for that. Yes, that, that's something to watch out for, for sure. Yeah. Hey, thanks for the insight, Dan. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You can follow him at Dan Graziano ESPN. And that is something to keep an eye out for. The NFL basically caught themselves and made it difficult for the judge to rule what they wanted. We'll see if they change their own language. Coming up, the great Ben Scully passed away yesterday. Tim Kirkson's going to join us to help remember him. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. 1988 World Series, Kirk Gibson, Homer. The perfect balance of saying the right thing and letting us hear the crowd roar. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Joining us now to help remember the great Ben Scully, ESPN's own great ESPN MLB analyst, Tim Kirkshin. Winner, which we will say every time now, of the 2022 BBWAA Career Excellence Award. So he's a Hall of Famer. Tim, uh, you have an encyclopedic memory for all things baseball, and you know just how to put things in their place. What is Vin Scully's place in the history of baseball? Well, he's the greatest broadcaster of all time. He did this for 67 years. Think about that for a second. He is also the greatest storyteller, in my mind, in baseball history. He is the words he used are just, they're just breathtaking when you listen to him. And it's not just in a baseball sense. This was his ultimate strength is that he could weave into his play by play. What else is going on in the ballpark, outside of the ballpark, travel, food, whatever it was. He was a uniquely intelligent man who could just take all parts of the game and put them together in a tapestry that nobody else could do. And 
to do it for as long as he did was absolutely stunning. And what he always used to, what he what he said once was, "I want to broadcast a game like I'm sitting in the stand, sitting next to you know baseball fans, and we're going to talk about baseball, but we're going to talk about other things too." That's how he envisioned his job as a broadcaster, and nobody, and I mean nobody, ever did a better job broadcasting a baseball game than Vin Scully. I was listening to a couple of former broadcasters today tell their stories about, you know, just how you mentioned, he did this such a long time. The guy was calling Brooklyn Dodger games a long time ago. I don't even know how many people know what that is. Um, but even like 2008, there was a, a, you know, a leadoff home run, I think by Ryan Howard. This would have been when Vin was 80. And the way that he like you said, painted the entire picture, weaved in what that meant for the crowd that was just sitting down getting ready to witness the game. Um, I can understand why that would be someone's favorite memory of listening to Vin Scully. Little things like that where the details didn't escape him. Dare I asked him, do you have a favorite call that you will think of or do think of now when you think of Vin Scully? Well, it's a radio call of Hank Aaron's 715th home run. I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but he grew up listening to radio and because there was no television. And he used to sometimes crawl underneath the big Victrola radio in his house so he could hear the crowd noise. That's what he loved the most. And this is what he was better at than anyone. He would take Sandy Koufax's ninth inning perfect game. He would take the Gibson home run or the Bill Buckner error. And after describing it, he would then be completely silent so the Mm. people could hear what he loved the most. And that was the crowd noise, the cheers from the fans. So on Hank Aaron's 715th, he calls it that Hank Aaron has hit a home run. And then he literally got up and walked away from the microphone for roughly one minute so everyone could hear what they're supposed to hear. And that's the fans in Atlanta cheering for Hank Aaron. So he ha- he was the best of all time with words, and yet he was even better when he knew this is not the time for me to speak. And I think that kind of sums up who Vince Scully was every time. It's Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz as we talk to Tim Kirkshen. You can follow him at Kirkshen underscore ESPN, although I just noticed you haven't tweeted in a very long time uh, or, like, responded. So I feel like maybe you don't check your mentions, Tim. Is that is that safe to say? <laughs> Sarah, I'm so bad at Twitter <laughs> that I'm afraid to use it. I, I sent out a... I sent out a butt tweet. People have sent done butt calls. I sent out a butt tweet a couple years ago, and it was so embarrassing. It was so awful that I wrote, I wrote a heartfelt apology. Look, I stink at Twitter. I'm sorry. I sent out a butt tweet, and I got ten thousand likes for an apology. So I think it's better that I stay away from that because. I'm 65, I'm really short, and I'm really bad at technology. (laughs) Well, I'll save all the flowery language for you when you come on the show then. I'll stop praising you on Twitter where you'll never, ever see it. Um, Vin Scully had a great effect on so many people in broadcasting, in baseball, just in the sports world. With that crazy brain of yours, can you dig in and find someone that you were maybe surprised to hear over the years 
was friends with Vin or was moved by Vin or had a crazy story that was out of the out of the ordinary? Uh, <laughs> I think this kind of sums up who Vin is. First off, every broadcaster will tell you that once you start to tell a story, um, Vin would start to tell a story and miraculously the at-bat would take like four minutes. So he could finish the story. (laughs) Every other broadcaster starts the story, and then the next pitch, there's a ground out to the shortstop, and you have to restart the story or forget about the story. So I tune in one night, and he, the Diamondbacks brought up Socrates Brito is at the plate. (laughs) So, So Vin then decides to explain to everyone who the real Socrates was during the Socrates Brito at bat. So he says he was a Greek philosopher, ball one, high and away, and goes through this entire at bat with Socrates Brito explaining to us who this great Greek philosopher was. To me, that, that kind of sums up. So we learn all about Socrates during an at bat from Socrates Brito. Only, only Vin Scully could do something like that. Tim, the trade deadline passed about 24 hours ago. There's plenty still to unpack with teams that made moves, those who didn't. And a player we didn't see move but we had heard might be potentially at the deadline was Shohei Otani. Were there any teams that actually came close in any sort of their offers or made serious offers to try to get him from the Angels? As far as I know, no. No team came close. His name was out there, but I'm sorry. I never believed he was moving because if you thought the Juan Soto trade was a big one, imagine Shohei Otani moving. Uh, It's my understanding that the Angels never came close to doing anything, nor should they have. He's got a year and a half until free agency. They have to exhaust every possibility and every avenue to make sure that they re-sign him and keep him forever. But So right now is not the time to trade him. However, let's say next year at this time, he is still unsigned, and the, the Angels aren't going anywhere, let's say, and Shohei is showing signs that he's not coming back to the Angels, then they're going to have to trade him. And then that's going to be a free-for-all of all free-for-alls. Imagine making a trade for that guy but he's so much more important to that team than just being their best pitcher and right now their best hitter um that they they just couldn't deal him so i was told it never came close to happening with any team and i don't think it should have tim kirkshen talking to us about the trade deadline you know we talked about it beforehand and we were trying to figure out is it worse to give a new owner of the nats a team with soto that he then promptly has to be responsible for trading or is it worse to take away a massive asset from a team before the sale now that we saw soto go what do you make of the decision they ended up making there well i think it was the right decision for the new owners at least they have clarity Let, let's say soto's stayed and the first thing that the new owners do when they come in is trade a generational player i don't think that's a very good way to start your tenure as the new owners of the nationals so at least there is clarity and now they can move forward and they don't have half a billion dollars owed to one player having said all that i mean i would love to take over the nationals sign this guy long-term and have him be my centerpiece forever. 
But that was not the case. Juan Soto said to $440 million, no thanks, I'm going to move on and I'm going to go to free agency. So I think for the new owners of the Nationals, it might be slightly better this way. Um, and they got a haul back, a haul of hauls back from the Padres. So they, they can do some things with those young players. But it, it sounds preposterous to say the new owners are better off without Juan Soto. Mm. But in some respect, they are because at least they have clarity and they won't be the bad guys for having traded him. Preposterous is the word I would use for whatever ended up happening with the Cubs, making everyone hug and cry and then nothing happening. But we've run out of time, Tim, so we'll have to get to that another time. Thank you so much for the memories, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. See you. Tim Kirkchen, ESPN MLB analyst and Hall of Famer. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, a triple threat of protection with home, auto, and more. Visit Progressive.com. Coming up, we'll talk about a major injury that will impact college hoops and more when we go to quickies next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We'll get some great memories of Vin in the next hour of the show as well. We'll also get back to the NFL appeal of Deshaun Watson and did a little reading in the break about what it could mean for the first couple games of the season. So stick around for that. But right now, because we have a busy day, so much to get to in so little time. It's Quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Starting with some awful news to get on a Wednesday in August with so much hope and promise for the upcoming collegiate stretch of seasons, multiple seasons. UConn Husky superstar guard Paige Beckers set to miss 2022-2023 season after tearing her ACL. She reportedly did it in a pickup game. And, I mean, not not just coming back off of injury last season and making a deep run, but absolutely crushing the NIL game, doing so much for her sport in the offseason with overtime and other events that she's been doing. Um, what a just terrible disappointment for someone who's already had a ton of injuries, Courtney. Yeah, it's like you can't win. Like she comes back off of the ACL that limited her to, you know, a significant portion of her sophomore season. And now another ACL tear here, tear here after playing a pickup game. Like she's trying to get back. She's trying to remain, you know, at, in peak conditioning. And then this happens. It's just so unfortunate to lose one of the faces of the game ahead of the season. It really is. We'll have a voice from women's college basketball to talk about what it means for the team and for the rest of the industry, I guess, a little bit later. Next story. Quickies. After an incredibly weird, surreal, awkward, cringy, offensive live event last weekend, there's more live news. Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and others, 11 to be exact, from the Live Golf Tour are now filing an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. They've been suspended by the PGA Tour for joining Live Golf, and now they're complaining and hoping that they can get a temporary restraining order from a federal judge to allow them to compete in the upcoming FedEx Cup playoffs. It's interesting, Courtney, because a lot of people believe that the PGA will eventually have to give in to the ever-growing Live Tour and fold in where the players are allowed to do both, and there's a sort of give and take of a of a season uh, that that includes events from both. But it's also interesting that the players who so criticized the PGA 
particularly Phil Mickelson, in talking about his reasoning to going to live, that there were all these things that were wrong with the PGA that they wouldn't let them do or weren't validating or weren't paying for, and now they want back in, and they're willing to sue to do so. Yeah, it's. I understand the antitrust nature of this, and I'm surprised it took this long for a lawsuit to be filed against the PGA because that's what they are alleging, that they've created a monopoly on the market. Well, you can go play at Live. You just can't play in the mm. other league. Like, I don't understand what's so hard to understand about that. Like, to your point and what Jay Monahan said earlier today after this whole situation came to the light and we saw how many golfers were filing lawsuits against the PGA Tour. Like, they walked away, yet now they sort of want back in, which is mm -hmm. like wanting your cake and eating it too while being part of something that's backed by, like, the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Riddle me that, how that's supposed to make sense. <laughs> yeah, he wrote, Fundamentally, these suspended players who are now Saudi Golf League employees have walked away from the tour and now want back in. With the Saudi Golf League on hiatus, they're trying to use lawyers to force their way into competition alongside our members who are in good standing. Uh, this is getting messy, Courtney. It already has been. But the more players that go over there and the more the PGA tries to fight to maintain uh, that those players will not be allowed, uh, the more I expect to see situations like this. All right, next story. Quickies. Something happened where we did not have the opportunity to really get into Zach Wilson's very special social media issues. Uh, they involve a girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend, his mom's friend, and an ex-teammate. Uh, you can look him up yourself if you want to hear all of the juicy goss, uh, but you can't look it up on his social media because Rich Samini reporting and the rest of the folks at Jets Camp reporting that he deletes his social media apps at the start of training camp to block out the noise. The old LeBron James zero Zach 30, Zach Dark 30, whatever you want to call it. I don't think he's anywhere close to 30 years old. Uh, we'll go with uh, zero Zach 23. Um Kind of a veteran move, but it feels more like it's like, ah, this is a great time for me to get out of and uh, delete or at least go through and, and get rid of a bunch of the offending posts that are in there. <laughs> yeah, convenient timing for that. And I do like this move versus what some quarterbacks will do in blocking everybody that's on the beat of their team. I have yeah. seen that happen, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, what did I do to you? Uh, <laughs> other than, like, report the news. And apparently um, they can't if, – if they see it, they can't not pay attention to it. So, I mean, good for Zach Wilson. I mean, you could just throw your phone or put it in a, right. in a drawer for the next six months. Well, we might need to text some it. people or respond to a coach or a teammate that needs to get to him. Uh, Use your laptop. Yeah, there you go. Um, I don't know yet if his mother will be deleting her apps. She has been very vocal on Instagram about the relationship rumors between her son and her friend. <laughs> and also the quarterback's ex-girlfriend where she's now dating his ex-teammate and accused her of, him of cheating on her with his mom's best friend. All of those people are presumably still on social media. I'm not sure he can control their accounts. So, yeah, I believe his mom also said people were hiding in the parking lot of her of her fitness center to try to get. I don't know. There's it's a lot is all I'm saying. The last thing the Jets need is a quarterback dealing with all that instead of just trying to figure out how to win some games. All right. Next story. Quickies. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin doing quickies here on ESPN Radio. Nick Saban, looking back at last year and 
all of the struggles his team went through, said this. Last year we had kind of a rebuilding year, so we should have nine starters back on offense, nine on defense, but six guys go out early for the draft, so now we have five back on offense and seven back on defense. So that in and of itself creates a few more question marks, but it also creates opportunity for other players to be able to shine in the program and contribute in a positive way. McElroy and Kubelik in the morning on WJOX-FM in Birmingham, Alabama. Courtney, uh, were we all to have the great fortune of having our rebuilding years land us atop the SEC and playing for the national title? Every time like he says something like this, it just it, I have to rack my brain about how many five stars they have on their roster <laughs> where even in rebuilding years, they're going to have five stars like – on the second team special teams depth chart. That's just how loaded this team is. And the fact that they went to the national championship in a rebuilding year, um, I think anybody's program, professional franchise, if they could have that same sort of luck, it would be more than just a rebuilding year. It would be a great year all the way around. Do you think he's trolling us or do you think he's literally saying <laughs> I think he really like, believes that, sadly. Yeah, like, like the only chance we could not win it all is if we were in a rebuilding year. Otherwise, there is no excuse. There's no possible way we could not win unless the excuse that we had was that we had a bunch of young new players. Uh, Man, what goes on in that man's head? It's Spain and Fitz coming up. The NFL has officially appealed the Deshaun Watson ruling. So what's next, both for the league and their decision-making and Roger Goodell's decision-making and also for Watson's team? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Last night after the show, we learned that Vin Scully, the iconic, legendary broadcaster for the Dodgers, had passed away at the age of 94. We'll get Steve Garvey, Dodgers great on, in just a little bit to share some of his fine memories of Vin Scully. And throughout the show, we've got to hear some of the best calls uh, but all over the internet, there's been incredible memories of Vin Scully. I'm very grateful that he retired, got his flowers, and managed to spend time with family and loved ones before passing. Uh, 94, a long, full life. Uh, we'll get back to Vin Scully and honoring him. But we also have some news of the day. The NFL, somewhat predictably, although there was a question about whether they'd undermine their new process of an independent arbiter by appealing, and they have done that. The Deshaun Watson six-game suspension has been appealed by the NFL. Now, Roger Goodell will decide whether he is the one to decide the appeal or whether he will assign a designee to hear it. Uh, that will come soon. Also, the NFLPA's reaction to the NFL appealing will come soon. Dan Orlovsky was on NFL Live and said he commends the league for deciding not to hide behind the decision of Judge Sue L. Robinson. Could have ran from it. Because you could have relied on the product is just so good. Mm. We got so many mm. good teams. We got so many good young quarterbacks. We will be fine. That's what could have been said. But instead, we're, we're going to move on from the past. We're going to learn from it. And we're going to make sure that we're better because of it. Yeah, Courtney, it sure feels like the league looked around and Sue L. Robinson in her report and her ruling said it felt as though the league was not a backward looking and learning league that they consistently failed to use what happened before to inform what came next. And instead, they would wait until public outcry that they did so initially with Watson and that they were doing so now again. It does feel like 
The league wanted to hear what people would say about this, and when the outcry was as expected, they showed up with the appeal. Yeah, and, I mean, they appointed, along with the NFLPA, Sue L. Robinson to be this independent arbitrator uh, to preside over this case so they wouldn't be the ultimate, you know, have the ultimate authority on everything of presiding over the case and then deciding what Deshaun Watson's suspension should be. But it kind of feels like she was there to, like, point out all of their blind spots to them to be like, mm-hmm. this is what's wrong. This is a part of your system that's completely messed up. Here's another part of it in her 16-page ruling that was issued on Monday. It, I don't understand, like, why that was necessarily needed, why the NFL couldn't have done that themselves going through this. But now that this is the case where – the NFLPA said that it was not going to appeal the decision. It urged the NFL to do so. Well, very clearly the NFL is going a different route with this and trying to seek an indefinite suspension, at least of a year, potentially even longer for Deshaun Watson. And I'm curious to see how seriously they're going to take it. Because like you said, there's um, there was no precedent for this. And that's what Sue L. Robinson was going off of in pointing out all of these egregious things. And she used that word in her 16-page ruling a couple times. Um, all these things that Deshaun Watson did, but because the language in the CBA didn't already have some sort of guidelines for this, the most she could give him was a six-game suspension. Now's the NFL's chance to finally get something right within the context of their CBA and hopefully, like, pivot course. It took all of these cases, like, you know, years and years and years where they could have looked back and and, and tried to remedy their past and reconcile their past, and they didn't. Now they finally have the chance to do so. It's unfortunate it took all this time and such horrible accusations um, levied against Deshaun Watson to get there. But now is the NFL's chance to finally get something right. Well, and Courtney, it feels like they maybe hoped that this would be an opportunity for Sue L. Robinson to set a new precedent. They talked about the egregious behaviors. They talked about how the level of accusations, every element of Deshaun Watson's case was never before seen, which is why they were asking for a never before offered punishment of a full year. I believe that they hoped that Sue L. Robinson would follow through with the proof that she did find that he was a serial predator and sexual abuser and do the dirty work for them, set the new precedent. And unfortunately for them, she looked at what they asked for. She said, you proved this. And then she said, unfortunately, you have not given your players the opportunity to know about a potentially uh, severe punishment in advance. She said, by ignoring past decisions, because none involve, quote, similar conduct, the NFL is not just equating violent conduct with nonviolent conduct, but has elevated the importance of the latter without any substantial evidence to support its position. While it may be entirely appropriate to more severely disciplined players for nonviolent sexual conduct, I do not believe it is appropriate to do so without notice of the extraordinary change this position portends for the NFL and its players. I don't agree with her. I think that the language in the personal conduct policy allows for aggravating or mitigating factors to up or down the length of suspensions, and she could have taken this opportunity to do so. But I think she almost is saying directly to Roger Goodell, if you want to argue that you should give more you know, severe penalty for this, then change your policy. Because she did use Ray Rice as the example. And as I pointed out before, Rice was suspended for two games Public outcry happened. They revised the personal conduct policy to establish six-game suspension as standard for first-time violent offenders, and they should and could and, and, and hopefully will do that now when faced with looking at, we asked for something, and she couldn't give it to us because of our own precedent. 
Um, Mina Kimes was on NFL Live talking about some of the reasons just like that, that the NFL might have looked at this and said it's worth appealing. The league wanted, we know this, an indefinite suspension. We know where they stand. We know how they view this case, and we know what they want to happen. I have to think that's going to factor into their ultimate decision, irrespective of the decision that the judge made based on precedent. And here's the thing about precedent field. It only exists until somebody changes, changes it. And Roger Goodell does have the ability to change it right now in response to the public black backlash to this six-game decision. Courtney, it would be embarrassing if they didn't change it right now. I mean, how can they not? Yeah. Like, when we talked about public outcry, what does it become after this? Like, if, if, if this goes through to what they want, which, you know, Jeff Darlington's reporting, they're seeking that indefinite suspension and a monetary fine, too. If they do all of that but still don't change the language, like, what's the point? Yeah. Like this is this is your one chance to get it right. This is your one chance to change the precedent. So if this did come up, if something to the rose to the level of and hopefully it doesn't, but if something ever rises to the level of what we've seen with Deshaun Watson, that there's already hard rules in place. So the NFL doesn't have to chase its tail along with the PA too to try to like find some sort of reasoning for a punishment because they didn't have any rules for it already. Like they have to do it at this point. I don't feel like Roger Goodell and whether it's going to be him or the appointee, I can't see how it's not him uh, ruling over the, with the final rule in this, right? Because that's what we've heard that this is ultimately going to be his decision. I can't see him appointing somebody else to hand down that punishment when it feels, you know, just right that he would be the one to handle this after all of this. Now they yeah. have to change it, though. They yeah, have to it needs change to be the about like Deshaun immediately. And, and the bigger situation that they've now made very clear that they've gotten themselves into, which is what I've talked about from the beginning with this new quote-unquote process. They hamstrung themselves. And the mess, too, that has been under his watch as commissioner. Yes. Like, this will be the way that people remember him, a major defining moment in his legacy. And it's not just changing language in the CBA which obviously that's important and that needs to happen but you know for all the for all the missteps that have happened with owners in the NFL which you know he, technically his boss and, and all of the stuff where we're trying to like compare well why why are punishments more severe for athletes than they than they are for owners and everything like that this is Roger Goodell's chance to yeah. You know, change the rhetoric around him that he, you know, only the, placates the problem, to and yeah, does it for players. The problem is, is that in order to change that, he would need to set up a system whereby he, as the employee of the owners, isn't in charge of punishing them. This will never change in terms of the way it res it relates to Dan Snyder or Robert Kraft or Jerry Jones or anybody else. If the system is still set up for the man who is required to work for those owners and paid by those owners is the one ultimately responsible for holding them accountable. That hasn't worked in the NFL thus far, and it's been made very clear across the multiple instances, including the Texans, who settled 30 cases here and are not being fully investigated and are not being punished. Mm -hmm. That needs to be looked into as well because reporting pointed to the Texans and what they did to enable Deshaun Watson's behavior. The problem is, is that the system is set up in a way that he works for them and will very likely put his job at risk if he overly punishes. Not to mention, the owners don't want you to set a precedent that if one of them does something, they might be subject to punishment. So they continue to try to cover for each other and not worry about the various crimes committed across their group because they have a perfect circle of protection.
it's going to make it really hard if the NFLPA does try to go by that reasoning, which they've they've thus far already mm-hmm. trotted out, which is you you can't hold the players to a precedent and to a, a certain level of expectation that you don't hold the owners to as well. A little bit later, we'll get into the expectation that Watson would be available for the regular season opener and all other games until his case is resolved. Somebody is saying not so fast on that. We'll get into it next. But first, Paige Becker's not going to play this upcoming season for UConn due to a torn ACL. What does that mean for her? What does that mean for UConn and the rest of college basketball? We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Last year's Women's March Madness, which we can call it now, National Basketball Tournament, was a massive win for the sport. Huge numbers, incredible players, a massively exciting finish. And unfortunately, as we look ahead to this upcoming season for college hoops, It'll be without one of its biggest stars, Paige Beckers, tearing her ACL in a pickup game. She'll miss the entire season for UConn. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. And now Michelle Vopel joins us to talk about it, ESPN senior women's basketball writer. Thanks for the time, Michelle. What can you tell us about the game or the circumstance around which we find out that Paige has been injured? Yeah, apparently it happened in a pickup game on Monday. Um... And, you know, Paige uh, had a difficult time last year. She missed 19 games with a knee injury, but she'd come back strong and led the team all the way to the national championship game. It um, was in really, you know, good shape um, this summer. And, uh, you know, wrote on on Instagram, it just takes one, you know, twist of the knee to, uh, you know, change everything dramatically. And and that's what's happened both for her, uh, for women's basketball, and obviously for, for UConn specifically. So she's eligible um, to enter the draft next year for 2023 because she's going to be 22 in October. Um, what do you think she's going to do? Because it, especially with her future at UConn, but she's got three years of eligibility remaining. Like, is it worth getting healthy from the ACL and, and just starting to think about her pro career because injuries have impacted her so much already? Or do you think that she will end up returning to UConn? I think she'll come back. Um, you know, she had said last year that her intention was to play four full seasons at UConn. Now, obviously, this changes things with one of those seasons being delayed. Uh, but, you know, you think about on the women's side of things, there's not the kind of money um, in the WNBA that there is in the NBA. It's not even close. And with NIL now, Paige is a, a somebody who can earn a lot of money. Um, and, and probably, you know, I think probably has a bigger brand name from UConn than she would um, moving into the WNBA. So I think both from a financial standpoint and what she wants to do, uh, I would be extremely surprised. Um, not, not only that, obviously, um, if she were to go pro next year, she would be starting in the WNBA coming right off a knee injury and not having played this season. So I think she's going to be back at UConn for at least another season. Now, that's a lot of pressure on a player who comes in having a tremendous collegiate career. I talked to Sabrina Ionescu about her first season and how much it hurt to hear the criticism. Kelsey Plum recently talked about depression issues and how she was almost grateful for an injury that took her off the court for a while because there was so much hype coming out of college that coming to the WNBA and not performing the way she had hoped was deeply difficult. So these very young players coming in, I think, for for – Page, it might be best to to get back 
to her peak to get back healthy at the collegiate level before starting her professional career. I wonder what position you think women's college basketball is in to handle this loss because we saw last year and in recent years a massive explosion wherein we do know a lot more of the players and teams. There's way more parity than there was five, six, seven years ago. But Paige Beckers is also a massive superstar that people tune in for. What does this mean for the game as a whole? You know, it's obviously disappointing. Uh, and that would be the case on the men's side or the women's side um, in any sport. Uh, to have somebody who is really an elite talent uh, be gone for a season. The thing about about what you talked about, about the depth of the game, it is undeniably so much better. And last year, Paige was gone for almost three months. And during that time, uh, Aaliyah Boston and Caitlin Clark were, were the big names in, in women's basketball. And Aaliyah Boston ended up sweeping um, the National Player of the Year awards. She's going to be the favorite um, for the, to do the same thing this year, and her team's going to be favored to win. So, you know, from that standpoint, there are, there are big stars coming back from last year who are going to still be coming back. You just miss seeing somebody who's so talented and who we know is going to play a big part in the future of women's basketball. So we know that UConn has lost, obviously, Paige Beckers for this coming season and also 52% of its scoring output from a team that went to the national title game last year. How when I when we look at the preseason polls and kind of where UConn stands right now, I think I saw it was posted they they were number two behind South Carolina a couple weeks ago. How how does this loss affect like the national championship race for women's basketball this season? It, it definitely um, it definitely makes UConn's chances take a hit. There's just no no two ways about that because of the type of player Beckers is. She's a facilitator. She's a great scorer. She's a very good defensive player. She is the the epitome of somebody who raises the level for everybody else around her. So you lose a lot with her. I think um, I still think UConn's you know going to go in a top ten team. They were um, as you said they were number two in our most recent way too early rankings. Um, they're probably going to drop to a six, seven, maybe lower than that, depending on um, you know how how everybody views uh, the other teams. Because there's a lot of teams who've really um, changed their look because of the transfer portal. So there's some unknown. We know there's a lot of talent at places that lost talent, but a lot of that talent is transfers. Um, it, right now, I think going in, you know, your top two teams now are definitely going to be South Carolina and Stanford. Um, so they're, and they're the last two national champions. So that part doesn't change a whole lot. Stanford was going to be right there anyway. But where it's going to put UConn really remains to be seen. And who's going to step up? A lot of pressure is going to be on AZ FUD to do that. And we'll just have to see, you know, how they adjust to it. But at least they know going into the season that they are not going to have Paige. Yeah, I mean, last season there were a lot of up and downs for the team because it was the ins and outs of when they did have Paige, when they did have AZ, when they did have both. And um, they will be able to plan ahead a little bit more, but not much you can say about the loss of your best player like that. Hey, Michelle, thanks so much for the insight. Really appreciate it. Michelle, Thanks Wolpe. for having me. At Michelle V, you could follow her, M-E-C-H-E-L-L-E-V. Uh, Paige Beckers posted on her Instagram, and part of what she said is – some little kid that just tore their ACL or had a major surgery might need this story because it's going to be one hell of a comeback. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days, but my absolute love for the game and godly strength will help me get back to where I need to be. I've worked too hard for the little kid in these pictures to keep going for the dreams I've had since I first picked up the ball. So why would I stop now?
keeps talking about how she has to walk through a nightmare to get to the dream in her heart and keep believing. Uh, so she's already posting about it and surgery will be coming on Friday. And the hope of course, is that when she comes back, she can get back to the level that she was at before one of the most exciting and explosive and fun to watch players in the game. And of course that her absence won't affect people's viewing of, uh, some of the great players and teams across women's hoops at the collegiate level. Coming up, a Dodgers legend joining us to share his memories of his friend Vince Scully. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Vince Scully calling Hank Aaron's. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. Pardon the interruption, Vin. That's Vin calling Hank Aaron's 715th home run to pass Babe Ruth. We've been hearing all sorts of Vin Scully calls. We've been hearing remembrances of the Dodger great longtime broadcaster and example for many across our airwaves today. We're going to keep doing that here at Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, and uh, ESPN Radio is also presented by Progressive Insurance's Renters Insurance. Protect the things that make your place a home, including coverage for theft or damage. Visit Progressive.com. Happy to welcome in 10-time All-Star World Series champ, 1974's NL MVP, Steve Garvey, to talk about the great Vin Scully. And we've heard so many incredible calls from Vin, so many memories from those close to him. Uh, you spend so much time with him. When you think Vin Scully, do you think of him as a friend? Do you think of him in the booth? W what do you picture? Well, say he was, he was really a man for all seasons, uh, and and it was individual. You know, you could think of him as a as a father. You think of him as a grandfather, uh, as a, a contemporary in the sport. You know, I've always said that the, you know, the players are the authors and poets of the game, and uh, the rest is sales and marketing. But there's the announcer who is able to articulate the moment. I've always said we're in the memory business, and uh, and nobody articulated better than Vince Scully. I always said, you know, he had this canvas every night and he painted a, a verbal picture from the beginning to the end. At the end, he had a masterpiece. And he did this day in and day out uh, because literally, I think he was chosen how many years ago as the greatest broadcaster of all time. And it was because of that, you know, God-given talent that he worked so hard to, uh, to refine and uh, through the use of words, became the greatest in sports. Yeah, he was such an incredible storyteller, but he also knew the power of pause and the times yeah. when it was necessary not to say anything. You spent a long time with the Dodgers. How much did Vin Scully's approach to the game and the way he called the games you played in, how much do you feel like that told the story of your career in a way that's completely different than had you played anywhere else? Well, sir, you hit it. You hit a home run. Uh, he, he was able to. <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> at moments of, of uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but at moments when um, the picture uh, told the story, 
he let it unfold, whether it was Kirk Gibson's home run or whatever it may be. He didn't try to keep talking over the moment so that you were distracted with the, the history that was being made. And I think, as you said, uh, he knew when to pause, and then he would add just a few words. You know, in a in a uh, in a probable year, the impossible happened. You know, and in those few words, it described you know seven months uh, and one man's tremendous accomplishment in that moment. So, uh, my my first actual moment of being on the field and, and hearing Vince Scully was the old days of the of the '70s when. The transistor radios uh, were prolific throughout the stadium, mm-hmm. and Ben's voice uh, was in the air. And I was a struggling uh, third baseman. I had a shoulder separation in Michigan State, and I wasn't throwing the same. And, you know, I had a rough day game about this time of the year, 1971, and almost threw a ball away. And Bobby Valentine made a great play and forced it second. Then I made an error on the next play, and I, and I had my head down. And there, there was a quiet, and you could hear Ben's voice. And he said, well, the young man's uh, struggling out there on the field, but uh, I've seen him work very, very hard. You know, he's probably going to have a good long career. And I said, Mm. thank you, Mr. Scully. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) A special dispensation. You know, they're not going to boo me now because you said take it easy. Yeah. Yeah, you made uh, them believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but that's that's the way he was. And yeah. I've always said that Vince Scully looked at people from the inside out. He treated everyone the same. He respected everyone. Um, he never thought of himself as, as uh, being above anybody else because of, of what he did and, and how he was talked about. But he was a storyteller, too. And, you know, at a time when a lot of announcers nowadays, and maybe it's a millennial or a generational thing, where time is filled with statistics and, and uh, metrics, uh, Vin would fill time with stories and relative mm-hmm. stories. And I've always said if uh, everyone who is great at what they do is one probably common denominator, and, and that's their preparation. And that was then, day in and day out, relative to the team that came in, the players on the other team, how the Dodgers were doing, uh, that was the story, and, and that was painted, and that was the classic each night. It's Spain and Fitz talking to Steve Garvey, the great Dodger legend, World Series champ in 1981 with the team, a 10-time All-Star. And it is so special to have your greatest moments called by the greatest of all time. Hilarious to think that you could sometimes hear that happening during a game when people would actually bring their radios. Um, Is there a story that stands out to you? Because um, one of the shows I used to be on all the time, they they had Vin reading a grocery list and making it interesting, you know, very slowly <laughs> listing out items from the grocery yeah. store like Bologna. Uh, they also had him tell a story of the time he tried to say hot shot, hit foul, and misspoke. One of the few times it probably ever happened to him. Do you have one that sort of stands out to you? Well, sir, um, it, it's very interesting. A couple of years ago, I was one of the, the three first Dodgers legends. In other words, they're, they're Hall of Fame. And it was Don Newcomb and, and Fernando Valenzuela and myself. And the Dodgers did a wonderful animation of my first day as a, as a bat boy going up in Tampa, Florida for the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1956. And it's a charming day. My dad's a ground bus driver. And here the Dodgers are. They had finally beaten the Yankees in the fall of 55. And Vin had called the World Series, the youngest announcer to ever call a, a World Series, and the Dodgers won. And they were the boys of summer. And, and Vin was one of the boys of summer. He wasn't in uniform, 
but he was the one that chronicled every night the this great Dodger team. And uh, and I got a chance to bat for him. Uh, and that was the beginning. Twelve years later, at Michigan State, I signed with the Dodgers. You know, 14 or you know, 15 years later, uh, make a transition to the Padres. But anyway, um, but they did this wonderful animation. And Vin did the voiceover. And it is really charming. I put it on my Instagram, uh, Stevie Garvey 6. And uh, I encourage everybody to watch it. Not necessarily because it's about me, but to listen to Vin's voice. And you can have this with you at all times. And uh, it typifies exactly, Sarah, what you said. He he can take the simplest of words in a sentence and make them come to life. And I think maybe that's the the greatest virtue of Vin Scully, was that uh, he brought the game to life verbally when there was no picture and you could just listen to it. So um, like I said in the beginning, he truly was a man for all seasons and for all of us. At Steve Garvey, six is where you can follow him on Twitter, talking to the great Steve Garvey about the passing of Vin Scully. I would say every broadcaster worth his or her salt has listened to Vin Scully and thought about the things that made him great. But he's not someone that can be replicated. I think it's such an authentic style and voice that really does go back to how long ago it was that he got started and what the mode of media was back then, how people listened, uh, how many teams there were, how many channels there were. Um, I don't believe there could ever be someone like him, no matter how great the next person is, because uh, everything's so disparate, right? There's so many different channels and places to listen and things to watch. He kind of spoke for a generation in a way that would be very hard to do again. Well, all of us have a have a natural cadence, a natural delivery, uh, who we, how we look, uh, our, our feelings and intonations. And I and I remember the great Al Michaels. I was in AAA with Spokane, and we were playing the Hawaii Islanders in, in the playoffs. And uh, and it's our first game, and that same sound came through that little stadium in Spokane, and I thought. Wow, Vince Scully's come come here to call the first game of the PCL championship, and uh, I said, "This is great." I couldn't see, and we win the first game. And I go in the dugout, and they come in and say, "They, you know, they want to interview after the game uh, the Hawaii announcer." And who is it that Vince Scully? And uh, and Al Michaels actually, you know, sounded so much like him. But I think a lot of announcers wanted to have. Something similar to them. There's no way you can capture every moment and every word. Uh, and years later, we would talk about it. And he said, you know, <laughs> I really did try to sneak in the Vince <laughs> Scully style. Yeah. And he, I said, oh, the heck with it. It's not me. And, uh, and Al turned out to be, have his own style, his own delivery, a Hall of Famer, and uh, a man very, very similar in personality mm-hmm. to Vince Scully. Yeah, Al is one of the few that feels of that time and of that ilk. Um, that so many of us grew up hearing across all different sports and places. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for joining to share some time. And I want to just quickly say off topic of Vin, I recently had the author of uh, Singled Out, the story of Glenn Burke on my podcast. And I really Mm. loved reading your friendship with Glenn Burke and how welcoming you were to him, the first out gay baseball player. It was really nice to hear about the friendships he had with his Dodger teammates and how much they loved him. Um, even yeah, all these years later, absolutely. as we still have to deal with that topic and still haven't had uh, someone since, but um, it was really nice to read about. So thanks so much for the time. 
and thank you for doing it. One one quick thing. My daughter, Olivia, is a sports anchor at WABC in D.C., and yeah. she grew up in Dodger Stadium, and she called all my children call last night, but especially Libby. And she had this big day of covering the trade yesterday, and she had tears in her, in her eyes, and she said, you know, Dad, he really affected me. And uh, she said, sure, I heard him on the radio driving home from the games, but the way he acted and the kindness he had toward, towards me uh, set a great example for me. So men, women, you know, young boys, young girls, and then uh, had an effect on all of us. He absolutely did. So very missed. Thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Great stuff from Steve Garvey. You can follow him at Steve Garvey six coming up. And do some NFL bite me. And Aaron Rodgers wants everyone to hear about his journey with self-love. So you will next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Going to have a little fun with NFL sound in a second, but I did want to point out, I teased this earlier, Courtney, Pro Football Talk says it's not likely that Deshaun Watson would be available for the regular season opener and all other games until his case is resolved. Because if the NFLPA doesn't file by Thursday an appeal of the appeal or whatever, the six games um, become a given. And so it will be whether he plays week seven or whether there is a longer suspension that the NFL goes for. Second, a court order allowing a player to play while litigation proceeds is not easy to get. The judge is going to look at the likelihood that the player will win on the merits of his case, and that seems pretty unlikely here, seeing as the judge ruled in favor of everything that the NFL presented, but merely seem hamstrung by their precedent and policy. So if it goes back to the people who created that precedent and policy and they ask for more, He's probably going to get more. Mm -hmm. So unlike some previous cases that we've seen with, say, Brady or Ezekiel, who were able to play while their lawsuits were challenged, it's not likely for Deshaun, at least per the experts at Pro Football Talk. Certainly doesn't feel like it. And to the point of if they want more, they're going to get more. Does it not feel like that's inevitable at this point? Because the NFL brought in looks like they brought in Sue Robinson to point out all of their blind spots. Now that it is legally like in a, in a, you know, in a legal document, they have no choice but to reconcile yeah. that and then change the language based on that. For some reason they couldn't do it themselves. No, which I get to a certain degree, not or like I said, they maybe wanted person. her to, mm-hmm. they wanted her to give this extensive lengthy suspension that they could then use as precedent moving forward and claim it was not them. And instead, she didn't. And now they have to go circle back around and do it themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, that they, they asked for a lengthy suspension. They proved the case. And then they watched as their own policy and precedent prevented that lengthy suspension. So it feels like that's where they ended up was hoping that she would use her ability to, to use mitigating and aggravating factors to extend it. And she didn't. And now Roger's going to have to do it himself. Uh, we will continue to talk about that case and the appeal this week as we get more information about it for sure. But we wanted to close out today with a little bit of fun what we like to call NFL Bite Me. Bite me, hey. Yeah, one of our weirdest uh, pieces of sound there. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll update it. We'll see. Uh, so first, a number of people have been asked about Tom Brady retiring, trying to go to the Dolphins as an owner and player, figuring that it wouldn't work out after Flores sued the team, going back to the Bucks, and everyone trying to act like it never happened. Well, Brady himself 
danced around the issue like a seasoned politician. Todd Bowles, the new head coach of the Bucks today, said it has nothing to do with us. Not sure how that's possible. Your quarterback literally retired to get out of his contract and go somewhere else, realized it wasn't going to work, and came back. But okay, Todd. And then, of course, Bill Belichick, who was the coach of Tom Brady for the first instance of the Dolphins trying to tamper with him. Here's how Bill answered the question. Bill, I want your reaction to the Dolphins yeah, I'm not really worried about that. We're just trying to have a good training camp here. Do you have any idea the Dolphins are tampering with your starting quarterback that season? Yeah, focused on training camp here. It's all in the past. <laughs> it's, we're on to Cincinnati. I'm sorry, what? We, we don't have games yet? Okay, it's training camp. We're on to training camp. Um, a little bit uh, shared frustration here, but for all different reasons. Matt LaFleur, who I always have to say, LaFleur, uh, the Packers head coach, having some trouble with the team's jugs machine. Well, we're in the market for a new jugs machine, so if anybody has <laughs> has one out there, uh, you know, they want to donate or put whatever price tag you want on it, I really don't care. We have to get a new jugs machine because I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> that thing was ridiculous. I mean, it, it was, huh? What was it doing? Did you not watch it? Oh, it's yeah. Oh, it was awful. You couldn't get the ball to turn over, and it's, I mean, it's damn near impossible to catch. So, um, yeah, that was not the finest hour for our equipment staff. <laughs> All the punt returners were having issues catching it to the point where when one finally caught one, there was like a Bronx cheer around the field for just catching a wayward punt. Uh, I don't know. I think they've got the four grand for a new one, unless maybe there's some sort of supply chain issues preventing it i think what's the saddest about all this to me courtney is yesterday was national boob day and we didn't get the jugs machine defaulting on its ability to work correctly on on national boob day that would have been cooler well at least you brought it up now so we <laughs> we paid our dues for it um i actually don't think this is such a bad thing because errant punts and you know the wind is a factor that last time i checked this team plays outdoors maybe it's actually a good thing that the punts and the, the balls were going out of it at all different directions because you got to be prepared for everything in the NFL. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know if you want to completely get rid of the confidence of everyone involved at that point, though. But uh, Aaron Rodgers is the next piece of sound on the Aubrey Marcus podcast, and I'm just going to let you hear it. To me, one of the core tenets of your mental health is that self-love. And that's what ayahuasca did for me was – help me see how to unconditionally love myself and it's only in that unconditional self-love that then i'm able to truly be able to unconditionally love others mm -hmm. and what better way to work on for me in my own this is my own belief but what better way to work on my mental health than to to have an experience like that i mean the best the greatest gift i can give my teammates in my opinion is to be able to show up and to be someone who can model unconditional love to them. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's important I play well and show up and lead and all that stuff, but they won't care about what you say until they know how much you care. I'm not sure about the legalities around ayahuasca or whether he'll be t tested for this and DMT and everything else, but I, I admit, Courtney, I'm intrigued. I do want to listen to that full podcast because at one point the clip that they share on his Instagram has a woman making noises with a sound bowl while they're talking. Uh, it's it's unique is what I'll say. 
I just I want to know how he's going to teach his teammates about self-love. <laughs> like what like what what does that look like in a locker room when the season is on the line? I fast more fast forward me to that part. Yeah, I mean between the tattoo, the ayahuasca, the unconditional love going to the depths of his soul, I wonder what effect the new girlfriend will have on the football part of his life. Sure feels like she's had an effect on the rest of it. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.